Well, I'd invite you to open a Bible to your favorite passage in the Word of God, 1 Chronicles chapter 12. <laughs> of all the places in the Bible that you uh, have probably enjoyed and treasured over the years, I'm guessing this isn't one of them. But there's a verse here in the midst of this that we're going to come to in just a moment in 1 Chronicles chapter 12. And then in a bit, we'll pivot over to one of the most beloved and best known verses in all the Word of God as well. It is astounding what's happening in the culture, the speed with which it's happening, isn't it? Two Sundays ago, who of us knew that an invasion 5,800 miles from Amarillo would capture the hearts and the headlines of the world? Even this morning, leading all the news, I was checking just before worship today, and on any outlet that you go to, absolutely dominating, as it should, the tragedy that's happening in Ukraine, even as we speak. It seems that wherever you look, whatever's happening in the culture, it's like we're facing this tsunami, this massive tidal wave of change and challenge and struggle. Pandemic, opioid epidemic, escalation of suicide, all the issues relative to morality and the culture, all of that. Well, tsunamis are tidal waves caused by forces you can't see. They can be caused by underwater uh, volcanoes. That happened recently in the South Pacific can be caused by mudslides or asteroids. 80% of the time, they're caused by underwater earthquakes. There was such an earthquake uh, 45 miles off the coast of Japan, for instance, back in 2011, March 11, 2011, caused a massive tidal wave that killed nearly 16,000 people, caused $235 billion in damage. I'm here to suggest that this massive tidal wave of cultural opposition to the faith we're seeing today, a tidal wave that I believe is unprecedented in American history is being caused by underwater forces that we don't see as easily. Want to identify them very briefly today. We'll talk about them in more detail tonight. Want to look at all of that in the context of why are we where we are? How did we get here? And what can we do redemptively to make a difference? So the biblical context for all of that, First Chronicles 12, as I said, your favorite passage, Robbie has this memorized. He could have just probably cited it for us, but starts in verse 23, says, these are the numbers of the division of the armed troops who came to David in Hebron to turn the kingdom of Saul over to him according to the word of the Lord. I'm not going to keep reading the text for which you're grateful. What you're going to see is 15 tribes that are listed here, all these various groups. If you do the math, what's about to be listed are 340,623 different soldiers that are all amassed together to help David as he is taking over the kingdom from Saul. But skip down to verse 32. In the midst of all of that narrative is buried this one statement of Issachar, men who had understanding of the times to know what Israel ought to do, 200 chiefs and all their kinsmen under their command. Men of Issachar who had understanding of the times to know what Israel ought to do. Our goal today is to join them. Our goal today is to be people of Issachar, to understand the times and know therefore what the people of God ought to do. I'm suggesting to you that there's a rising tide of opposition we've not faced in American history. Why is that happening? Where did it come from? Four underwater earthquakes. I'll identify very briefly. As I said, we'll talk about it in more detail tonight. First would be a rejection of biblical truth in a post-truth culture. Second would be a rejection of biblical morality with the so-called sexual revolution. Third would be a rejection of biblical witness, and that's critical theory, critical race theory. 
And then fourth would be a rejection of biblical faith itself with the rise of a radical secular replacement ideology. So let me come back and explain each of those just very briefly. Then we'll get to the good news. We'll do the bad news, then we'll get over to the good news if we could. So first, the first one, the rejection of biblical truth. Saw so a survey the other day, 79% of Americans say it doesn't matter what you believe so long as you're tolerant of the beliefs of others. 92% say they are their own sole determiner of moral truth. Only 24% of Americans think the Bible is the literal word of God. The percentage who think the Bible is myth has doubled in the last 20 years. In 2016, Oxford University Dictionary made post-truth their word of the year. So how did that happen? Well, the long story takes you back to Immanuel Kant and Nietzsche and the postmodern thinkers. The short version runs like this. Your mind interprets your senses and the result is truth. My mind interprets my senses and the result is truth. Your mind is not mine, your senses are not mine, so there can be no such thing as objective truth. Said Immanuel Kant in the 1800s, and that sweeps Europe, and it becomes eventually postmodern relativism, and people that have never heard those names nonetheless believe you have your truth, I have my truth, you have no right to force your beliefs on me. Ever heard that? Just live by your truth. Makes the Bible a diary of religious experience. Maybe what Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John experienced, but I can't force that on you any more than you can force the Quran on me. We'll all just get along as long as we tolerate the fact there is no such thing as truth, just your truth and my truth. D.A. Carson, his book, The Intolerance of Tolerance, points out, was a day when tolerance meant you had the right to be wrong. Now tolerance means there's no such thing as wrong. And if you disagree, you're intolerant. Well, this idea fails the logic test. To say there's no such thing as truth is to make a truth claim, right? No such thing as truth and we're sure of it. Fails the practical test. If all truth is personal, individual, and subjective, does that make the Holocaust just Hitler's truth and the invasion of Ukraine just Putin's truth? But it nonetheless is where the culture has come, a rejection of biblical truth. It's underlying all the others that follow in its wake. The second, underwater earthquake causing this rising tsunami of opposition to Christian faith would be a rejection of biblical morality. So now you go back to 1953 and Hugh Hefner and Playboy and we start normalizing pornography. 1960, birth control becomes legal and now couples can have sex outside of marriage with less fear of pregnancy. It's Woodstock, it's the free love movement, it's all of that. 1969, the Stonewall riots and uh, beginning legitimizing LGBTQ activism. Starts with normalizing. You see that in popular culture, will and grace and so forth. Pride month every June. Kellogg's pride themed children's cereals. Uh, Nickelodeon pride themed children's programming. Pride themed Barbie dolls, normalizing. Then we get to legalizing. 2015, Obergefell legalizing same-sex marriage. Now we're stigmatizing those who disagree as homophobic and bigoted and prejudiced and narrow-minded and discriminatory. And we're moving to criminalizing such disagreement. One example would be the so-called Equality Act you've heard about. Passed the House twice, it's in front of the Senate now. The president promises to sign it if it reaches his desk. 
It amends the 1964 Civil Rights Act to forbid discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation and gender identity. Crucially, it forbids any appeal to the 1993 Religious Freedom Restoration Act. So here's what all that means in practice. Let's say I was back pastor at Park City's Baptist Church, the last church I pastored in Dallas. We had morality standards for our staff. We defined what marriage was. Let's say someone on our staff marries somebody of the same sex violating our morality standards we have that they agreed to when they joined the staff. We therefore release them from their employment on that basis. Let's say the Equality Act is law, and this staff member files a lawsuit, a judge issues an injunction. If we don't obey the injunction, I go to jail. If the Equality Act becomes law. It's an expression of a conventional wisdom today that says that my unwillingness to do a same-sex wedding would be exactly the same thing as if I would not do an African-American wedding or a Latino wedding. It says that those of us who are evangelicals believing in biblical morality are as discriminatory as if we were KKK members. A member of the Senate Judiciary Committee made that exact allegation when they were discussing the Equality Act last year. So now biblical truth is outdated, but not just outdated in the context of morality, it's intolerant, the worst thing we can be. A third earthquake would, would claim that our witness is in addition to that also oppressive. So for that, we're with critical theory, critical race theory, a very large conversation. I've written, written a great deal about this. I've had lots of discussions about it. We did an hour long Zoom conference on this in our ministry recently. I boil it down for just two minutes here in this context. Critical theory takes you back to the 20s and 30s in Germany, the Frankfurt School, Max Horkheimer, who coined the phrase critical theory. It's a Marxist construct. It believes that life is experienced in classes, majority classes, minority classes. You experience life as white or African-American or Latino, as male or female, whatever other class you might be a part of. Critical theory says the majority class got to be the majority by oppressing the minority, by definition. You may never have oppressed anybody, but your class someplace along the way did to get you to the majority that by definition oppresses the minority. In the 1970s, that got applied to race through Derrick Bell and some legal scholars, critical race theory. It can also be critical gender theory. It can be any majority-minority construct. For our purposes today, critical theory says that because Christians are the majority in America, we are by definition oppressive, by definition. Leads to a fourth earthquake, a rise of a radical secular ideology which says religion is not just outdated, not just intolerant, not just oppressive, but dangerous. That says that we scientific, sophisticated folks now know that religion as a construct is outdated, superstitious mythology. We now know that religion flies planes into buildings, causes 9-11s and clergy abuse scandals. We now know that religion spends money on buildings instead of people in heaven instead of earth. We now know that religion is dangerous as a construct. One of the best known of the so-called angry atheists says religion is a virus and the software of humanity that must be expunged. 
He says, we've gotten rid of every God but one. We just have one to go. Richard Dawkins. Christopher Hitchens, best-selling book, God is Not Great, is subtitled, How Religion Poisons Everything. I was actually in a debate with Mr. Hitchens some years ago. He and I both published books at the same time, so actually didn't want a debate. It turned into kind of a panel discussion. It was Lee Strobel and Bill Craig and uh, William Lane Craig and uh, Doug Wilson and myself. I was speaking to Mr. Hitchens prior to the event. He had some philosophy background, and that's my background. And So I pointed out that his subtitle, How Religion poisons everything is puzzling. Religion, I said, has no ontological status. That means there's no such thing as religion, they're just religions. It's like leaves. What color were leaves? What do you mean an oak leaf or a pecan leaf? Well, he didn't say religions, he said religion. So I said, so really what you're saying is that every religion of every kind, of every manifestation, of every shape across all of human history poisons everything. He said, that's exactly what I'm saying. Well, you put all that together and we're not as surprised that the fastest growing religious demographic in America are those who have no religion. That last year Gallup announced that the percentage of Americans with a relationship to a church, synagogue, or mosque has fallen below 50% for the first time in American history. Because there is a rising tide of cultural opposition which is claiming that Christians, especially evangelical Christians, are outdated, intolerant, oppressive, and dangerous. Now aren't you glad you came to church today, huh? You're waiting for the good news, right? Well, let's get to the good news. God redeems all that he allows. He is still on his throne. None of this surprises him. He's not taking notes this morning. He's not alarmed. He's not reading the news. God is not concerned. God is on his throne and he wants to redeem this for his glory and our good and wants to use us to that end. So how does that work? The other passage I'd want you to think about, you don't have to look up. You know it as well as I do. It's 1 Corinthians 13, 13. It says, now abide faith, hope, and love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. We need to remember that as we face something we've not faced before. Back at the end of his farewell address, President, Abraham, President George Washington said, of all the dispositions and habits which lead to political prosperity, religion and morality are indispensable supports. Reason and experience both forbid us to expect that national morality can prevail in exclusion of religious principle. John Adams said our constitution was made for a moral and religious people and is wholly unsuited to the governance of any other. They knew, the founders knew, that democracy depends on morality and morality depends on a consensual religious morality and you and I as the salt and light owe it to our culture to keep bringing that to the world in the dark of the room the more important the light. So how do we do that? Faith, hope, love. Think with me for just a moment about the kind of faith we need today. In the Bible, God is a king. Remember Jesus beginning his ministry, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Praying thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Teaching us to seek first the kingdom of God. When he comes back, his name will be king of kings, lord of lords. The Bible means the kind of king they had in Jesus' day. Not a constitutional monarchy like we'd see in the UK, but the kind of king where you're sitting in his seats, where these pews belong to the king, where you're wearing his clothes, you're breathing his air, where he's king on Monday, not just Sunday, king of what you do in private, not just public, king of the money you keep, not just what you give, that kind of king. That's what the Bible says God is. In our culture, God is a hobby. In our culture, we separate Sunday from Monday, spiritual from secular, religion from real world. 
And as Dr. Phil might ask, how's that working for us? Every place in the world, people are making God their king. God is on the move and the kingdom is advancing. So I've come today to invite you to make him your king every single day. It starts by trusting him as your Lord and Savior, asking him to forgive your sin and be the Lord of your life. If you haven't done that, we're going to give you the chance to do that. We urge you to do that today, to meet him, to know him personally as your Lord, your Father, and your King. If you settled that, then every single day, make him your King that day. You can't make him King of tomorrow because tomorrow doesn't exist. Start the day, Ephesians 5.18, being filled with the Spirit. Start the day by getting, getting alone with Him, by getting off the throne. Literally saying, Holy Spirit, I ask you to control me, to empower me, to use me, to guide me. Holy Spirit, I put you in charge. Father, I make you my King. Literally say that at the start of the day. Then as you walk through the day, stay surrendered. When you have an opportunity, challenge, temptation, you pray about it, you surrender it, you give it to Him, you ask Him to fill you, empower you, control you, use you. All through the day, stay submitted to God as your king. When you fall to temptation, ask him to forgive you and cleanse you and plug you back in. Stay off the throne. Someone told me if you want to get along with God, stay off his throne. Every day make him your king. Faith in God is your king. Gypsy Smith, a great revivalist of an earlier generation, was asked how revival starts. Said, take a piece of chalk, go home, draw a circle around yourself, get on your knees, pray till everything inside that circle is right with God and revival will be upon us. Wish we could give you chalk as you leave today. Faith in God is your king. Hope in what the Holy Spirit is doing and can do. There's a fifth great awakening happening in the world today. David Barrett, World Christian Encyclopedia, documents 82,000 conversions a day, the highest number in Christian history. Some think that number is far too low. A book called God is Back, written by two Oxford scholars, one a Catholic, one an atheist, not a theology book. It thinks it's a million a week coming to faith in Christ. Do you know that more Muslims have trusted Christ in the last 15 years than the previous 15 centuries? Many after seeing visions and dreams of Jesus. Muslims believe that God reveals himself in visions and dreams. They think that's how Gabriel gave the Quran to Muhammad. And so now Jesus, Isa, as he's known in Arabic, is appearing to Muslims around the world in white robes, in dreams and visions, and they're turning to him in unprecedented numbers. I heard recently about billboards being taken out in Egypt saying, have you seen the man in white? If so, call this number and thousands are coming to Christ. I can keep you all morning stories I have heard when I've been in Bangladesh and Turkey and in Egypt and in the Middle East and in America of Muslims experiencing Jesus in a spiritual awakening in the Muslim world. When I was in Beijing, I was told that 100,000 come to Christ every day in the underground church. Now they can't prove that it's underground, but that's their sense. An incredible spiritual awakening happening in China right now. Do you know that soon there will be more Christians in China than in America? God's on the march. It's documented 28,000 conversions a day in Sub-Saharan Africa. I've been to Cuba 10 times over the last 20 years. Christianity Today recently spoke of the Cuban revival, more than a million Cubans coming to Christ in the last 10 years. Holy Spirit's on the march. You say, well, why are we seeing that? Of Barrett's 82,000 conversions a day, only 6,000 are in Western Europe and North America combined. And it's because in our culture, God's a hobby, and in their culture, God's a king. When we make God our king, we join the fifth great awakening. 
So faith in God as king, hope in what the Spirit can do, and then love for the culture who so desperately needs the love of God. Ephesians 4.15 commands us to speak the truth in love, in love. I'm doing a lot of work these days around what we're discussing today, this book on tsunami, all that's happening in the culture. Get interviewed a lot on media, three or four times a day, depending on the day. And almost always the conversation turns into kind of an adversarial sort of, well, that's the enemy out there trying to steal our religious liberty. That's the enemy attacking our freedoms and all of that. And every time that happens, I do what I can do to really reframe that conversation. Lost people are not the enemy. Satan is the enemy. The Bible says the natural man doesn't understand the things of God. They're spiritually discerned. My wife used to tell our sons, lost people act like lost people. So did you. So did I. The darker the room, the more necessary the light. If the room is dark and we have the only flashlight, whose fault is the darkness? My friend John Stone Street says ideas have consequences. Bad ideas have victims. So we need to see the so-called other side, not as the enemy. We need to be engaging not as cultural warriors, but as cultural missionaries. We need to be beggars helping beggars find bread. We need to be speaking the truth in love. And that starts by making God our king every single day, being filled with the spirit that we might manifest the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control and doing so as part of an awakening that starts in our own hearts and souls. And then using your influence, wherever you have influence, to speak the truth in love. At school, at work, neighborhood, family, wherever God has you is your mission field. That's your Jerusalem, speaking the truth in love. Lord, help me every day to speak the truth in love. My prayer when I came up here was, God, help me speak the truth in love. And if we will do that, I am convinced absolutely convinced that God will use us, that God will use you as cultural missionaries with faith in Christ as King, joining the awakening by speaking truth and love, that God will use us as catalysts for the awakening we so desperately need in a day that so desperately needs what only Jesus can do. So I'll close with an example of how God can do that. I mentioned that I love Cuba. I've been there 10 times over the years. One of my trips down to Cuba, we were in a little village in the central part of Cuba where there's a pastor there who's really my pastor. I love him and pray for him every day. We've had a 22-year now friendship and relationship. So we'd shown up on this one weekend. We got down there and asked how it was going, and he said, I have to tell you a story. He said, in recent months, the enemy had been attacking, and by enemy he means Satan, had been attacking their town. Santeria had moved in in witchcraft violence, drug gangs targeting the city, attacking the church physically, attacking Christians, dead bodies paraded through the streets, and they didn't know what to do. God led them to do something they'd never thought about doing. The bell tower on that church building, that temple as they call it, is the highest edifice in the village there. And so one morning at break of dawn, two church members climbed up to that bell tower, opened the windows. One began reading the Bible, starting at Genesis 1-1, over the town, while the other prayed. They did that for an hour. Then the second hour, two more church members climbed to the bell tower, one reading the Bible, the other praying. The next hour, two more, then two more. They read the Bible over their town. 
as they prayed over their town and asked the pastor what happened. He began to weep. He said the gangs left. The Santeria left. The witchcraft stopped. And we have been in revival ever since. Now, picking up on that model, there's a day of the year, you won't read about it in Western press, when churches all over Cuba read the Bible over the nation of Cuba. And a million Cubans have come to Christ in the last 10 years. God is on his throne. The Spirit is on the march. Let's join him to the glory of God. Would you pray with me? Take this moment, if you would, just you and God. And first of all, say to him, Jesus, I want you to be my king. I'm surrendering the throne. Holy Spirit, fill me, control me, use me. I give myself to you. Would you say that to him right now? Now would you ask him to use your life as a catalyst for spiritual awakening in Amarillo and around the world? Then would you ask him to help you to speak the truth in love wherever you have influence and use your salt and light to penetrate the dark and the corruption and bring the good news of God's grace. Father, I thank you for my sisters and brothers here today in this room and wherever they're worshiping with us and for the privilege you've given me to invite us to join your spirit as you advance the kingdom in our hearts, in our culture, in our day, to your glory. This is my prayer and ours. In Jesus' name, amen.